Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your holy word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the glorious salvation that you have given to us. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see marvelous things in your word this morning. God, give us a vision, a greater vision of the glory of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would see him as the treasure of surpassing worth. Which is far greater than anything this world can offer. God, we invite you to come speak to us powerfully. God, speak through me. Speak through your word. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, this morning our passage from God's word asks us to confront, head on and wrestle with a radical claim. A huge claim. This passage claims that far beyond merely enduring and getting through trials and sufferings, we can actually rejoice in suffering unjustly. This is a radical claim. How can this be? A person doesn't just wake up one day And suddenly respond to suffering with rejoicing. Just because they ate their Wheaties that that morning. Or maybe they drank their kale smoothie. No, something far greater is going on here. To what reality then must this point us? What could be so great, so fantastic, so amazing to enable us to rejoice in suffering. 
If I had to summarize the answer, I would say it is this. It is the glory of our Savior, of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, because nothing else could be great enough to enable us to rejoice in suffering. So our main point today is this. Can I get rid of it? Is there a little noise coming through here? Like a little? Okay, okay. Still getting used to this thing here. Uh, So our main point this morning is this. Do not be surprised by your trials and sufferings, but rejoice in them and glorify God. So this morning, first, we're going to look at why we should not be surprised by our trials and sufferings. Then we will look at six specific reasons from our passage today to rejoice in our trials and sufferings to the glory of God. So first, why should we not be surprised by our trials and sufferings? Answer, as we look at verse 12, trials and sufferings are a normal part of the Christian life. It's a plain enough statement. But let's look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal, or the ESV says the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. So what is this saying to us here? We should not be surprised by fiery trials because they are not strange. Not strange. So what's another word for something that is not strange? Help me out with this. Familiar. Familiar. Normal. Okay? So if something is not strange, it's normal. So what Peter is saying... Don't be surprised by your fiery trials. They're normal. They're a normal part of the Christian life. Trials are a natural byproduct of being united with Christ. So, is that it? I mean, just don't be surprised. It's normal. Perhaps this does not at first appear to provide the reassurance that we were hoping for. Um, But yet, right at this point where we feel some discomfort, we squirm a little bit. Right at this point, it's very important, I think, that we pause and prompted by verse 12, we begin to ask ourselves some probing questions. What type of road have I been expecting for my life? Is my default expectation that my walk with Christ will be one of ease and comfort? What expectations does the Bible set for us in this matter? What are the implications of throwing in our lot with Jesus? What does the Bible say it means to follow Christ and be united to Christ? Well, let's look at a couple passages briefly, just to get a sense throughout Scripture of what the Bible says on this topic. 1 Peter 5, verse 9, just one chapter later in this same book. Peter says, resist him, that is, your adversary, the devil. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
saying, look, you're not alone. Your brothers all over the world are experiencing the same kinds of sufferings. And we know that's true today. We hear about it in the news and in China and other countries all over the world, in in the Middle East and many other places. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. This is right before, the night before Jesus goes to the cross in his final hours with his disciples. This is what he wants to share with them. He wants to prepare them. He says to them, if the world hates you, know that it, it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, or we might say in Peter's language, you are strangers, you're exiles, you're aliens, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things... They will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Just a couple more quickly. Acts 14, 21 through 22. This is, this is, I mean, just shortly after Paul, the apostle Paul was stoned to within an inch of his life. They thought he was dead, so they left, but he, he was not dead. But speaking of Paul and Barnabas here, Acts fourteen twenty one. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Did you hear that line? He doesn't say through maybe some tribulations or possibly none. He says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and really he, he's kind of referencing back to that same passage in Acts 14. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You can count on it. He says it right there in plain, I mean, just plain as day. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That persecution, of course, may look like different things. Maybe it's being ostracized. Maybe it's being ridiculed. Maybe it's being judged or looked down on by other people who do not follow Christ. We seem strange to them. They reject us. They, they exclude us. They talk about us behind our back, whatever it is. Or certainly other more severe persecutions. I'd like to, to, re, to revisit and just to, um, to remember how Jesus called us also to take up our cross and follow him. And that that was the call. That was what he, that was the vision he cast for us of, look, this is what I'm calling you to do if you're coming, if you're going to come and follow me, is to take up your cross and follow me. Uh, It's not going to be easy. So Mark uh, chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. In other words, taking up our cross is inseparable from following him. So let's think about what does it really mean? What does it mean to take up our cross? The cross meant suffering. Taking up our cross means embracing suffering. The call to take up our cross is a call to suffer. So if we have truly chosen to follow him, then we have chosen to take up our cross. We have chosen to embrace suffering, trials, persecution. So all of this, all of this paints a clear picture that trials and suffering are a normal part of the Christian life. We should not be surprised by them. We should be ready for them. We should expect for them to come. Readiness is important. If we are ready for our trials, we can endure them without losing our spiritual equilibrium, getting knocked off balance or being hurtled into confusion, into disillusionment and despair. As we wonder, all these trials are coming on me. Why, Why has God forgotten me? Where are you, God? But no, God wants us to be ready so that when those trials do come, we know right at that moment, we know he has not forgotten us. He promised us these would come. This is not something strange. It is not separate from his plan. We don't need to fall into confusionment, despair, disillusionment, wondering where God is. But rather let us be prepared to stand firm in our faith when those trials come. So we see here, and God's telling us ahead of time, we see here as well God's loving kindness in preparing us. And also, he will not just let us cruise through this life in complacent indifference, held fast by the entanglements of the, of the world, the cares of the world that so easily seem to wrap their tentacles around us. Instead, he brings trials. He brings difficulties. He calls us to take up our cross and follow Christ, to force us into a crisis of faith. See, trials shock us. They startle us into seeing that we can't just, we can't just add Jesus as one more item in, on the buffet of all the different things of our life, but rather that he is life itself, that he is the only real food. Trials and sufferings bring us to the end of ourself and cause us to lift our gaze beyond this passing world and up to the higher things, to the things of God. Jesus told us to take up our cross and follow him. So let us take a good look with our spiritual eyes this morning at what we are holding on to. What is in our hands? What is in your hands. What are you carrying? We can't take up our cross if our hands are full because we're holding on to other things. If we're holding on to, to self, to comfort, to ease, to pleasure, to pos- the possessions of the world and to our own agenda for our lives. As we consider God's word this morning that tells us to be ready for suffering. Perhaps it stirs up within us a wrestling, a struggling 
Maybe some here are asking themselves, am I really prepared to sign up for this? Is it really worth it to take up my cross and follow Christ into suffering? And no doubt this is a key point where the battle, the spiritual battle rages. So let us examine carefully then with clear thinking the choice that lies before us. I would maybe summarize our choice in this way. You maybe could word it a little bit differently, but something like this. Either we choose to follow Christ and embrace the sufferings and potential loss of worldly things, because after all, trials are a normal part of the Christian life. Or we can choose to hold on tightly to the worldly things and to seek to preserve our comfort, our pleasures. That is the choice before us. My friends, this world is passing away along with all its pride, its passions, its possessions, its lusts, desires, cravings, and vain strivings. Do not miss the experienced and known glory of God and his eternal and infinite joy for trinkets and small-minded cravings that will soon be gone forever. No sooner do we grasp at them than they turn to ashes and blow away in the wind. Consider this analogy. Suppose a person were given the opportunity to choose one of only two gifts that were being offered to him. He can have only one. And he must choose which one he wants. On the one hand, over here, he could have $10 billion. Okay, that's a lot of money. On the other hand, he could have a clump of dirt from someone's backyard. $10 billion, clump of dirt. To the outside observer, this seems like an easy decision. But when presented with this choice, he thinks long and hard, paralyzed by indecision. Boy, that dirt is sure appealing. Think of everything he could do with it. Of course, this illustration is a little absurd. But even this illustration, I think, is not able to fully capture the absurdity of us choosing the passing trinkets of this world over God's infinite and eternal riches. Yet how many times have I needed God's forgiveness for being the man who chooses the clump of dirt? If only our eyes, our spiritual eyes would be opened for us to see the riches offered to us in Christ, we would never choose the dirt. So, Do not be surprised by trials and suffering. They are a normal, expected part of the Christian life. So, if we are not to be surprised by fiery trials, what then should our response be? Are we just gloomy, depressed, sullen, just waiting for the hammer to fall, just awaiting the coming punishment? Here it comes. More suffering, more pain, more trials. 
No, Peter says in our passage that that should not be our response. Rather, we should rejoice. Now, this does not mean that we try, of course, to deny that suffering is painful and hard. No, it is the inescapable nature of suffering that it is painful and hard. But we don't just stay there and sulk. The command in our text today um, means that despite the pain, despite the sorrow and difficulty, we can rejoice. We can and must rejoice. Not just plaster on a fake smile through gritted teeth, not just adopt the unfounded optimism of wishful, happy-go-lucky thinking, I'm sure the sun will come out tomorrow, it's all going to get better. Not just that, but rather the rejoicing that comes to treasure Jesus Christ, our Savior. We rejoice to experience a unique closeness and fellowship with him that comes only from sharing in his sufferings. If Jesus is our great treasure, if he is the greatest desire of our hearts, then surely any price to grow closer to him is not too high. We rejoice in his glory and in his reward and in his coming kingdom, which are far greater than the things of the world. So specifically, let's look at six reasons Six specific reasons from our passage today to rejoice. Reasons to rejoice in our trials and sufferings. The first reason to rejoice in our trials and sufferings to the glory of God. Yeah, number one. Trials come as refining fires to test and purify our faith. Let's let's look again at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal or trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. You see, it comes upon us for our testing. So what exactly, and then earlier, of course, in the verse he said, he mentioned fiery trial. So we see this this fiery trial, we see testing. What exactly does he mean by fiery trial and testing? Uh, Peter used similar language back in, in chapter 1. So let's look back. Um, I'll read briefly from 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, so he's explaining the purpose of the trial, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, trials come to test us. And here is, here's the test. As difficulty and hardship comes, will we continue to trust in God and stand firm in our faith? Peter is confident that all those who have truly believed will indeed pass the test. He says that the, the, these trials have come so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. And this tested genuineness of our faith is more precious than gold. It is of great worth. Think of all the good that will come out of the faith that is tested by trials. These trials, they bring us closer to God. 
They bring us to the place where we have greater victory over sin. They make us more conformed to the image of God's son. And they make us more effective for fruitful ministry to build God's kingdom. So we see eternally lasting good comes out of these temporary trials. The refining fire burns away the impurities of gold. And likewise, the hot fires of trial make the Christian holy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 tells us, For they, that is our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So they make us holy. They allow us to share in the holiness of God. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing, there's that word again, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Even Jesus, though completely without sin, the scriptures tell us in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, even he learned obedience through what he suffered. And Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, tells us that he was made perfect through suffering. Christ was made perfect through suffering. So there must be a perfecting of holiness, a training and discipline and godliness that comes to us, not even always directly in response to our sin, but yet in the plan of God for our growth and ultimate good and for God's glory. Wayne Grudem says, therefore we should see all the hardship and suffering that comes to us in life as something that God brings to us to do us good, strengthening our trust in him and our obedience, and ultimately increasing our ability to glorify him. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Let's think about this. Step back and try to imagine from the perspective of eternity. Imagine, perhaps, that we went through our entire life without any trials or difficulties of any kind in our Christian life. Smooth sailing, all the way. Finally, at the ripe old age of 104 years old, after a long, uneventful life of prosperity and comfort, we pass away peacefully in our sleep. We get to heaven. I just, I have the, I think we would find ourselves asking, Lord, why didn't you send me some adversity? Maybe I could have demonstrated greater faith by trusting you in the midst of challenges. Maybe I could have earned more eternal reward, rewards by being bold and courageous for Christ in the face of opposition and persecution. Maybe I could have avoided living a completely unremarkable life. Would we feel like we missed out 
Lord, if only you would have sent me some more trials to test my faith. Think of all the eternal good that could have come from that. Well, thankfully, we don't have to worry about that. Because God assures us in this passage that trials are a normal part of the Christian life. And we can rejoice. We can rejoice that they will come as refining fires to test and purify our faith to the glory of God. Second reason. Okay, that was reason number one. Second reason that we can rejoice in our trials and sufferings to the glory of God. Here it is. Rejoicing in our sufferings with Christ now brings rejoicing in glory with Christ later. This is from verse 13, or a shorter statement maybe of that same thing. Rejoice in suffering now. Rejoice in glory later. Can't have one without the other. 1 Peter 2.13 But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. So let's begin to unpack uh, this verse, and there's a lot there, by asking this question, what does it mean to share the sufferings of Christ? And I thought of a couple ways, um, not necessarily exhaustive, but we share in the suffering of Christ in our full identification with Christ and with his cross. The world, as we read in John 15, the world hated him, so it will hate us. It persecuted him, so it will persecute us. So here again is our call to take up our cross and follow him, to identify with him and be ready for the suffering that that will bring. The second way we share in the sufferings of Christ is in the persecution that comes with the work of the gospel in advancing God's kingdom. In God's great and glorious plan, it was through Christ's sufferings that the kingdom of God on earth was established. Christ's sufferings purchased for him the church, which was redeemed by his blood. His suffering paid the debt that we could never pay. So, how, we might ask, how then can we participate in the sufferings of Christ? Certainly, we can add nothing to his redemptive work. Amen. That is very true. However, while the church was established through Christ's sufferings, God calls us to participate in advancing and growing the church through our sufferings. Or to say it another way, the sufferings of Christ purchased our salvation, but as we share in Christ's sufferings, God uses us to spread that salvation to more and more people. And at the same time, sharing in Christ's sufferings causes the gospel to go even deeper into us as well. It's amazing. Counterintuitively, the persecution we encounter actually furthers the building of God's kingdom in an even greater way than we could accomplish without it. And we've seen that over and over through history. Because when we are persecuted, we are forced to rely more completely on God and set our hope on him alone. Okay, so let's look again closely at verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ... Keep on rejoicing. Why? 
so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. You may rejoice with exultation. Even greater rejoicing. So I want to call attention to the middle of that verse. Keep on rejoicing so that also. So we see right here, there's a direct connection between suffering with Christ now and glory with Christ later. So what is that connection? What is the nature of this connection? I mean, it seems kind of mysterious. Like, really? I, I don't, our brains don't really latch onto this very well. What is the nature of this connection between suffering with Christ and glory with Christ? So for help with this, I'd like to uh, compare verse 13 to a similar verse, which is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And here he, Christ says to us that our sufferings are specifically and greatly rewarded in heaven. Matthew 5, 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. There it is again. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this verse in Matthew 5 says to rejoice because your reward is great. But our passage, and I want to point out the little contrast here, but our passage says to rejoice so that also our rejoicing may be great. So, okay, Matthew 5, re- rejoice because your reward is great. First Peter 4, rejoice so that also. So in other words, our rejoicing now directly leads to our rejoicing then. Certainly both of these passages are true, but I think there's something valuable here. I don't want us to miss the unique and powerful truths I believe we can glean from this statement in verse 13. So let's try to really get in and understand this this connection, this so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Okay. So what does it say to ourselves and to the world around us when we rejoice to share in the sufferings of Christ? What is the testimony of that rejoicing? When our worldly possessions, position, or physical safety are threatened by our persecutors and we respond with rejoicing, it shouts with a megaphone that those things are not our treasure. But instead, Christ is our treasure. It says that we have found something so glorious, something of such surpassing worth, something so delightful and satisfying and beautiful, such a boundless, unparalleled treasure that we can respond to any loss. We can respond to the loss of all the things that the world values, not with merely resigned stoicism, but with celebration. I mean, this, this is, wow. We can respond to all these things with celebration. I mean, when was the last time you celebrated and just jumped up and down? I mean, maybe you got a promotion or a raise or something really awesome happened. I mean, we just don't think like this, that persecution comes Terrific suffering, and we celebrate. 
Our rejoicing says that Jesus is that treasure that I just described of all surpassing worth. Our rejoicing says that he is that glorious, that satisfying, that delightful, that beautiful. In other words, our rejoicing glorifies God through Jesus Christ. It shines a spotlight on his greatness. It attracts others to him when they see how much we delight in him. John Piper says, rejoicing now in Christ's sufferings shows that your treasure is Christ and not the world. Without that rejoicing now in Christ's sufferings, okay? Without that rejoicing now in Christ's sufferings, we don't have any assurance that we will rejoice and be glad when he comes. So with that rejoicing now in Christ's sufferings, we gain great assurance that we will rejoice when the glory of our treasure is revealed for all to see. And aren't we always excited to show someone what's really important to us, what we really treasure? We are excited for them to see it too. All this causes us to treasure him even more. And as the supreme worth of Christ in our eyes grows even greater, the result is even greater rejoicing when his glory is revealed. But we, and we, we hinted at this, but let's think a little bit more of the, of the negative case. What would it say if we cannot rejoice to suffer with Christ? What would that mean if we cannot rejoice to suffer with Christ? Would we not be treasuring at that moment? Treasuring above Jesus? the things of the world, which we fear losing. And it is true that crisis, that adversity, that sufferings reveal to us what we truly treasure. It may be that our great need today is to see with the eyes of faith the exalted glory of the risen Christ Matthew 13, 44, Jesus tells this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, there it is again, rejoicing, joy. He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. But see, the treasure, he says, is hidden in the field. It's not apparently obvious when you walk by. You see it. What's the big deal? There's some dirt. There's some grass, some rocks, some trees. People would think you're nuts. You sold everything you had to buy that. With joy, you bought it. What on earth would possess a person to sell all that he has in joy in order to buy that field? It's because... They have seen the hidden treasure. Have you seen that treasure? Have you been rendered speechless in awe and wonder before his majesty, his beauty, his delightfulness? If this is your need this morning to really see and taste his glory, 
then seek after him. He will be found by those who seek him if we seek him with all our heart. Again, unless Christ is supremely valuable to us above all other things, we cannot rejoice to share his sufferings. This fact can be, can be gleaned from, from the passage we read in Matthew 5. How can we rejoice and be glad in our reward in heaven unless that reward were more valuable to us by far than the things of earth that we have lost? Consider also Hebrews chapter 10, 34. For you, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully, there it is again, you joyfully, that is, I would add, with rejoicing, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Why would you joyfully accept the plundering of your property? And he goes on. He tells us the answer. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So there it is again. They saw Christ as a better possession than what they lost. Again, Hebrews eleven twenty six. Moses, it says, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. There's that concept again. Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Indeed, the call to follow Christ, to love him, to treasure him is not a stoic call, is not a call to stoic abstinence from all pleasure. It is not a call only to hardship and suffering, but it is a call to suffer the loss of lesser things in order to receive, experience, and enjoy the greatest pleasure, the highest joy, the most glorious and boundless of all delight. Paul in Philippians chapter 3, and oh, to have a heart like this. Paul said, Philippians 3, 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. There it is again. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And skipping down to verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Friends, there's a man who has seen the glory of the risen Christ. Let's look again at 1 Peter 2. Um, excuse me, let's look again, yeah, at, our, at verse 13 in our text this morning. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Notice he says, keep on rejoicing. So what we can infer is that Peter assumes that we were already rejoicing in the Lord before the suffering came upon us. That's great news that we can rejoice now. We don't have to wait for the suffering to come. We can rejoice now 
And even more great news, when the suffering does come, as it will, we can keep on rejoicing and even increase our rejoicing. Notice he says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. So this indicates that the greater our suffering, the greater our rejoicing. What strange thinking is this? The world knows nothing of this kind of joy. Yet this is what happens when we... Excuse me. Yet this is what happens when Jesus is our all-surpassing treasure. Philippians 4.4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So always, again, we don't have to wait for suffering. And by the way, one of the best preparations to be ready to rejoice in our sufferings is to rejoice in the Lord right now, before the suffering comes. Without the death of a seed, there is no plant to grow. Without the cross, there is no resurrection. Christ had to die before he could rise again. And we are united to Christ. So it works the same for us as well. We take up our cross now. Our resurrection comes soon. In our Christian lives, not all the glory is now. We need to be patient. The full glory of Christ will be revealed. It is going to happen. And when it does, we will be glorified with him. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The third reason why we can rejoice in our trials and sufferings to the glory of God is this. Insults for Christ now bring the glory of God's Holy Spirit now. So this is a more immediate Benefit, perhaps. Insults for Christ now bring the glory of God's Holy Spirit now. Look at verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This phrase here could be translated for the presence of the glory. Even the spirit rests on you. The presence of God's very glory. Resting on us by his spirit. Like Moses who had been up to see the glory of God and he came down. And his face was shining and they couldn't even look at him. He had to put a veil over his face. That's the image I get. The presence of the glory, even the spirit resting on us. Notice also the connection between verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, we are told of the coming revelation of God's glory. Yet future. In verse 14, the spirit of glory, same word, okay? Spirit of glory, same glory, rests on us now. So the full revelation of his glory is coming in the future. But right now, we can experience that same glory resting upon us by God's spirit. So right there in our moment of need, right there as we are being insulted, reviled for the name of Christ, The Holy Spirit comes to us and rests upon us in a powerful and special way. He brings an enhanced sense of his presence and nearness, his power and strength, his boldness, his comfort, his peace. 
and he gives us a special taste of his glory. We see an awesome example of this in the arrest and stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7. I'll just pick out a couple small snippets here. As Stephen is before the council being falsely accused for his testimony for Christ. Acts 6, uh, Acts 6.15 says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So there, the Holy Spirit resting on him, just illuminating him so that others even could see it, that he looked like an, he had the face of an angel, the glory of God resting upon him. And then in Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 56, he finishes his speech to the council. And then this is what happens. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. He's being persecuted. He's about to be stoned. He's being reviled. He sees right there at that moment the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We do not usually associate persecution and insults with such great blessing. But this is the truth of God for us today. Who is the one who is blessed? Is it the wealthy, successful, famous, or powerful? None of those, necessarily. It is the one who suffers with Christ, and on whom the spirit of glory rests. He is the one who is truly blessed. He is the one who is truly happy. The fourth reason to rejoice in our sufferings and trials to the glory of God. Fourth reason, rejoice to be named with Christ. Verses 15 and 16. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian... He is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. In the first century, that term Christian uh, was likely intended to be an insult, a pejorative. Uh, its literal meaning was a follower of Christ. But it was often used in scoffing and derision, aimed at Christians with sneers. So in stark contrast to those sneers, rather than be ashamed to be named with Christ, we are to rejoice to be named with Christ. For to be named with Christ is the highest honor. How then could we be ashamed? Also, it's interesting, this kind of parenthesis in verse 15. is sort of odd. Why does he step into this and, and say, make sure none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or, e- thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler? Uh, just a few brief observations here. Um, Identifying with Christ, with the name of Christ, brings greater scrutiny to our behavior. And whether it's big sins all the way down to what we might consider smaller sins, we must put to death our sin and grow in righteousness. Indeed, our actual behavior is one of the greatest witnesses we have to Christ. As verse 16 says, 
We are not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in this name. G. Campbell Morgan said, if a man is known as a Christian and does not live as one, he dishonors God. To bear the name is to take a responsibility, a great and glorious one, but nonetheless a very solemn one. 1 Peter 2.12. He said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter wants to make sure that we don't draw the wrong conclusion from the admonition to rejoice in suffering. Suffering itself is not the goal, okay? So we should not go out and try to bring suffering upon ourselves through doing evil or through troublesome meddling as a busybody in other people's affairs. There is indeed a self-inflicted suffering that does not bring with it the promises of our passage today. Perhaps some in Peter's day were using this teaching on suffering to rationalize their sin, thinking, well, yeah, if I commit this sin, it's, it's probably bad, but hey, it will bring about suffering, which will actually further my walk with Christ. And Peter is saying, far be it from us to think that way. May we never do that. Contrasted with suffering for doing evil, which would rightly bring shame, there is no shame in suffering. For the name of Christ. So do not allow yourself to be named as an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Instead, let your let yourself be named as a follower of Christ. And do not be ashamed. <clears throat> Rather, let us feel blessed and honored, for our persecutors are paying us the compliment that we bear the fragrance of Christ. We remind them of Jesus. What a compliment, really. I mean, what could be a greater honor for us? Be encouraged then when you are reviled. The world sees Jesus in you. The world may hate the name of Christ, but we know that he alone is the glorious king, that before him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Would we then be ashamed to be named with him? One of my prayers for myself and for our church is that God would use these truths in the power of his spirit to free us from fear, from the fear of identifying with Christ, from the fear of speaking the name of Christ to unbelievers, from the fear of rejection by others, from the fear of what they will think of us, even the fear of perceived or imagined awkwardness in sharing our faith. We need to be freed up to embrace insults, rejection, and persecution so we're no longer afraid to live openly for Christ. The darkness grows when we have hidden our light. In place of all these fears, may God give us freedom to be bold for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not us who they reject. It is Jesus. And that's really not our problem. So, Rejoice to be named with Christ. We are one with him. That is cause for rejoicing. I'm going to try to motor through these last two points quickly as our time is short. The fifth reason to rejoice in our trials and sufferings to the glory of God. 
God's righteous judgment is coming and has already begun in verses 17 and 18. So let's look there. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Quickly, a couple points of clarification are warranted here. First, in verse 18, the difficulty he mentions does not refer to God having a hard time saving us. Okay? It is saying that the righteous is saved along with difficulty. That is, that they will experience hardship and trials, that it is not an easy road to follow Christ. And that fits very well with the context of our passage. Next, we need to understand when he says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. This is not a judgment of condemnation or punishment, but one of purification, discipline, and testing. God is purifying his church. Verse 18 makes it clear that God's judgment here leads to salvation for the believer, not to condemnation. David Guzik writes, We must always remember that there is never any punishment for God. Excuse me. There is never any punishment from God for us in our sufferings, only purification. For the Christian, the issue of punishment was settled once and for all at the cross when Jesus endured all the punishment the Christian could ever face from God. Again, here, Peter is reinforcing that these trials are not to be surprising or considered strange. They are not just random events befalling us. Rather, they fit into God's sovereign plan. They are part of accomplishing his divine purposes. They are part of the big picture of demonstrating his glory in and through human history. Think of it this way. The all-consuming fire of God's holiness is being revealed. It is the same fire, but experienced in two different ways between the believer and the unbeliever. Think of the believer as the gold and the unbeliever as straw. The fire comes to gold and removes impurities to ultimately strengthen and enhance its beauty. The same fire comes to straw, and the straw is consumed with none to rescue. So I believe that Peter wants to reassure us that that God's coming judgment is an absolute certainty. All wrongs will be made right. All evil will be repaid, including the evil done to us by our persecutors or by those who insult us. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. The coming judgment is so certain that it has already begun. In painfully real and tangible ways, It has already begun in our midst. It is not some far-off, distant promise. It is real. It is here. It is right at the gate. If we experience so clearly right now, at least in part, part of the all-consuming fire of God's holiness through purifying trials, then it is not hard to see and understand that God's ultimate judgment on the wickedness of the world cannot be avoided. It is coming swiftly and with terrible force. In the church, in God's house, we experience the fire now. The unbeliever, the godless man, the sinner, their fire is coming soon. And it will never be quenched. 
briefly the sixth, the sixth reason to rejoice. With complete confidence, we can entrust our souls to our faithful creator. Verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Again, here we see that our sufferings are not accidental or by random chance, but rather we suffer according to the will of God. This should be a comfort to us to know that God, who is good through and through and who is altogether righteous, he is able to give us the strength to endure it. And that this trial will ultimately be for God's good, for our good and for God's glory. God is faithful. He never lets us down. We can entrust ourselves to him with full confidence. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will guard the deposit that we have entrusted to him. We can be absolutely certain. God did not let Jesus down when Jesus entrusted himself to his father as he suffered. He will not let us down either. Rather, God exalted Christ to the glory at his own right hand. And he will exalt us with him as well. So, do not be surprised by your trials and sufferings, but rejoice in them and glorify God. Let's pray. Father, oh, how we need your help with this, God. Teach us to rejoice in our sufferings, to see in them the opportunity to glorify you, to treasure you above all other things. God, to rejoice, to have joy that the world would see us and be blown away by the joy that we have. Lord, we worship you today. We praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.